Hello, Sports Best Friends, and welcome to Competitions Stories. We have two copies of this fantastic book. You're going to hear all about it in this episode, but we're going to give them to you. So if you retweet this episode, we're going to pick out two people who retweet it, and we will send you the book. Uh, it's signed by the boys. You're going to love it. Listen to this now. Retweet when you hear about it. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Sports Best Friends Stories, a podcast that this week is happily revealing Australia's past triumphs. I'm Big Teen, sitting patiently across from me today are two giants of the literary world. Between them, they have written 90 bajillion books. That's a real number. I looked it up. They have covered everything from rugby league and union Olympics and Olympians, cricketers, commentators and coaches. Before they took to biographies and histories, they worked in some of Australia's most respected newspapers and magazines. There is... More than a century of experience in the room, and I am contributing zero to it. And it is this experience that is part of why John Coates, AC, President of Australian Olympic Committee, described them as legends themselves. Please welcome Ian Heads and Norm Tasker. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Very much. Good to be with you. Oh, no, that sounds like a politician, doesn't it? <laughs> I also say that, don't I? Good, yep. to, good to be here. No, no it's good to talk about sport. It is. Well, I expect now every time you go to answer a question, you say, thank you for the question, and then you'll start your response, <laughs> as all good politicians. And now I've had the pleasure of meeting, well, before I move on, I, I, I pointed out before that Ian's brought notes and Norm hasn't. I love that that relationship that you're already displaying, an almost a odd couple kind of a vibe. One's just here to see what he says, and the other one's planned out what's going to happen. Is that what happened a lot of the time with the book? No, not really, but it sort of reflects the book in a way in that I think... Um, You're very organised and normal, isn't it? No, is no, no, <laughs> no, no, not at all. It just happened the book had a, almost had a life of its own where it segued into Norm doing some of the um, the heavier hitting stuff up front. We never talked about it in formal. No, it just happened that way. But I've always I've been fascinated by the minutiae of the game for a long time, the little stories that expose bigger things. So I sort of went a bit the other way, and I think the balance hopefully turned out pretty good. No, certainly. Now, I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, Ian a couple of times before and have found him to be wonderfully friendly. Norm, did you find him to be the same or was he challenging oh, at times? It's been a very hard 60 years. <laughs> I think we first met 1961. I actually taught him how to drive a motor car. That's how far back Is that real? Go. That's it's real. Wow. Yeah, wow. And in the streets of Kalani Heights, which were just being cut at the time. That one of the <laughs> there is a story pop- that goes with it, actually. I'd, a few days before that happened, I'd invited a girl from the News Limited Library to go out to the races. Okay. And she's accepted, surprisingly right. accepted. Hadn't had a lot of luck in that sort of area. <laughs> right. So I had the car, but I couldn't drive it. So, <laughs> to, so Norman kindly took me through the paces. Hold and on. I so actually got, I actually got a license. Emergency lessons, they were. Yeah. Emergency lessons. So and I actually got a license, but the punchline was she brushed me. Oh, no. She rang up and said, oh, I can't go. She wasn't the only one either, by the way. <laughs> Could she have caught wind about your dangerous driving? And she thought, I'm not getting in the car with that lunatic. No, I think she just got a better offer from somewhere else. The races wasn't that flash. Norm, probably. (laughs) You heard about the thing, Katie. Well, that's the point. (laughs) Was he a good teacher? In the car? I don't know. Well, I haven't touched wood. I haven't had any serious problems. Yeah, he was a good teacher. Yeah. Yeah. It was an old uh, Volkswagen. An old Volkswagen. Very old Volkswagen. Gears and clutches and all those things that have disappeared. Hundreds yeah. of years ago, we potted around in that. Yeah, yeah, no, he did a good job. I don't, I'm stuck on the car. Did it? Did you? Did you buy that car? Or was it your parents' car? Or? Um, 
Because I really hope you bought a car without a licence. I can't remember how I got the car. My mother put some money in and right. I repaid her. She was still a working lady then. So I don't know the other car. The was car was car? Just suddenly it was it. just there. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> there it was. <laughs> I thought I better get something. That's how far we go back. Yeah, wow. <clears throat> Who taught you to drive? <laughs> Goodness. I think Jack Spackman did. Remember Jack Spackman? Yeah, I remember Jack. Yeah, he was a guy that worked at the telly. I, I started at the telly when I was 16, so well, I wasn't allowed to drive until I was, what, 17. And I don't think I even tried until I was 18 or 19. But mm-hmm. Jack Spackman used to take me around Centennial Park. Really? Oh. Yeah. And uh, then I I think I got a driving instructor for the last little bit. To... Right. Goodness, I haven't thought about these things for 100 years. <laughs> but you weren't driven by a motivation <laughs> of taking a young lass to... Uh, not not immediately, no. no. <laughs> my, my plan was entirely pure, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Dress, dress up for a nice day at the races. Beautiful. Yeah. Did you go to the races, do you remember, in the end? <clears throat> no, I, don't, I didn't go, I don't think. Yeah. She, I think she only rang me on the night before. Said I can't go. Yeah. The Volkswagen might not have survived the event anyway, mate. <laughs> Bit of a bomb. Uh, Anne once said that Artie Beaton enjoyed working with him due to the fact that Anne's wife would drop... Biscuits and tea over. You know, did you have some of those highlights? She still does. Wow. We do it every Tuesday. Ian and I attend a, uh, a strength training class. What do they call it now? Men's movement or something. It's for old guys anyway. But we Not do a our- pretty sight. <laughs> <laughs> we do our 100 push-ups at the end of it. Really? And, uh, well. Well, we do. We do. We do. We do. He builds up to 100 push-ups over 10 weeks, but... You do, you do, you do sit ups and you do the plank and you do bicep curls and we can uh, give you a small exhibition. We can give you, oh, you it's a, unfortunately, it's a podcast, but we might oh, do it after. It's not a visual medium. You can, you can see how fit we are. Yeah, I mm. certainly can. No, it's very good. And every every Tuesday we do that, which is also a device to sort of stay in touch and keep yeah. together. And that's where the book sort of yeah. sat there talking over over tea and bickies. We thought we should do something like that. You know, one of the things that drove us was that. These stories, just history itself, just gets tends to get lost. Yeah. And um, we thought, well, you know, if you want to preserve these things, my kids are always saying to me, stop telling the stories over and over again and let's get them on paper. And we thought, well, why not? And it was great fun doing it, right. digging through old boxes and unbelievable yeah, we found some treasures. The other aspect of what Norm just said too was the book, and I think we probably both think there's a bit of a nod to the generation before us who right. – I don't think any of them got around to uh-huh. writing books. You know, Tom Goodman and Mike Gibson even and a whole lot of Bill Morty, Ernie Christensen, terrific journos, all of them, you know, top offer. And I'd say most of them at some stage had toyed with the idea of putting it down on paper. Right. But never quite got around to it. So. And it's a remarkable discipline too because in writing about things that happened some time ago, I mean, to us, we've been doing this for 60 years. So you look at things that happened 30 years ago and it's yesterday. But, you know, that's one of, the, one of the hazards of age, of course. But you also think to yourself, well, we're writing about things here that were absolutely significant, that, that people today, young people today, would n- perhaps never have heard of. Yeah. So that sort of history, which, is, which has had an enormous impact on sport as we know it today, is so easily lost. Yeah. And preserving it, I think, is really worthwhile. Yeah. And, and the other great aspect of this is that because you've both been doing it for so long, there are ele- there are times in which we have a chapter where you're talking about people that I don't know and I'm learning about them and it's, and, and, and it's an interesting thing. And then we go into, because it's not chronological, we then leap to a time 
you know, where mm. I, I'm there, I've lived it, I've seen this thing, you know what I mean? And so it's because of that, it, it allows different generations to kind of engage with mm. it that way. It's been done in such a way too that you can read a chapter here and there, you don't have to read it in sequence. Yeah. Um, which I think is is a good way to do a history because it keeps you more engaged. That's probably true. And because you've both been at it for so long and in so many different sports, it also isn't segmented into this is for rugby league people, this is for rugby union people. It is a genuine sport mm. book. Is that was that a real aim that it was going to be that kind of diverse? Or? I think it just happened really, didn't it? But it was there was always there. The fact I mean the first sporting event I ever covered, I know the first one I got a byline for was speed skating. <laughs> Which is not really one of my fortes. You are Norm. renowned as one of the experts, at oh, yeah. <laughs> So if you've got any questions about speech going. <laughs> Come to you, yeah. Or at least the history and it wasn't even game. a byline. It was a, yeah. the, editor, the editor, our uh, editor, Jerry Pinter, who was a strange man. He promised a byline, but all it was was a tiny little tagline. Not at the end. Almost yeah. the mic, you know. <laughs> I think it's uh, also reflected the diverse sort of ways we went about our careers, eh, and I started off at the Telegraph in 1962 and 63. I, I was doing rugby league as George Crawford's offsider. And then the next year, Phil Tressel went off on a cricket tour, so they said, you do the rugby union. And you didn't argue. You just did yeah. what you were told. And at that point, I think Mike Gibson came in, replaced me for that year, and then you came in and replaced Mike Gibson. Mm. And I sort of stuck with the rugby union because Tressel kept going away, and then I got an offer from the – son to go and do it there full time. So I finished up doing cricket and rugby union mainly and Ian did rugby league and the Olympics mainly. And so these two sort of areas yeah. in sport mm. came together and in our careers and are reflected in this book. Yeah. And it's great. And also it's another reflection of how Australia is so diverse in its sporting ability. So we have so many things that we are good at or interested in, as opposed to just being a predominantly a soccer nation or, or one specific thing. We're extremely good at rugby union. It needs to be covered. It's incredibly popular. So is rugby league. We're very good at the Summer Olympics. And, and that's reflected in this at Australia. We've always played above our weight at most things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, before we talk um, too much more about this new book, let's have a quick look back at both of your previous works. I'll ask you both um, this. If you had one book, just one book in you, excluding this book, what do you really wish that you, if you had just one, what do you wish you'd, would be the book that you released? Of the ones we've done? Sense. Yeah, if you could only have one. Well, you've done 52, Ian, so you've got a much wider yeah. choice. Um, it's a really interesting question, that. But I, I, um, that was I, an I, politician's answer. There you go. No, no, yeah, I'm not, to get it out. Yeah. I don't know if I lapse into political speak, please <laughs> throw me off the balcony. <laughs> manage that. No, the, uh, I think the book that probably, when I, ref- I reflected on that, for a time, and I thought, well, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I've, I've probably enjoyed all of them in different ways, and mm. there's a couple I probably haven't enjoyed. But the very first book I did was a, a um, very solid history of Australian sport, beginning with Indigenous sport, and it was a I did it with Gary actually, Gary Lester, but um, and um, it stood up really well. And I, um, when I think about it now, I think of it as a foundation for. It taught me a lot, you know, doing it. I did a vast amount of research. Right, very nice book, really. Was a sponsored mm. book, I think, but um, so probably that one. I'd, I'd hang on to it. Right. Well, your first, uh, your first everything is always important, isn't it? And the first book I did, 
uh, I did with Alan McGilvray, who was a very good cricket commentator. And I find you've got to explain those things now because he's been on for a fair while. But he's mentioned quite a bit in this. He is. Yeah. Um, he was he was the predominant Australian cricket commentator on the ABC for well, he played in the thirties with Bradman and those guys. Wow. And he was still going in the eighties. And he asked me if I'd write a book for him. So I did. They called it The Game Is Not The Same because someone had done a jingle for the ABC, The Game Is Not The Same Without McGilvray. <laughs> and it was a fantastic record and a fantastic sort of insight into a man's life. And also it was a tremendous reflection of the way society in Australia had changed yeah, right. over those very formative years. Mm. You know, we're talking about the, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. A long time ago, but... Uh, it, it was a really significant time in Australia, and he sort of typified what Australia was about in so many ways. And he told the stories of men who were just plain legendary from Bradman on, and his involvement with them, and the way cricket had changed, the way sport had changed, the way Australia had changed. And it was just a terrific book to do. And it went into six printings. I mean, wow. it sold its socks off, and uh, uh, very hard to match after that. We, I ended up doing, I think, four books with him, and then I did another one when he died, a tribute book, and um, uh, hard hard to beat. I mean, I've, every book I've done, I've enjoyed. I've, I've not been like Ian. I've only done about thirteen or so, but but I've enjoyed only them all. thirteen. Okay, well, it's still extreme. <laughs> well, he's done fifty-two. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, that's my wife's count. Probably, it's possibly true. Yeah. He's also got biscuits and tea, so he's sitting and you know he's enjoying the book process because well, he's got someone. The biscuits and tea are becoming a bit of a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you. But anyway. listen, the, 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 when you're talking about him, it also reminded me of the, of Richie Benno, kind of being the next generation of that. He had an incredible career, played some great players, and then he had an incredible career as a commentator as well. And so mm. saw a huge. Does cricket look after people better than, or, or commentators and players better than other sports? Oh no, I don't think so necessarily. Okay. I think, I think. Cricket, well, maybe it does because it certainly honours um, players who have gone before. I mean, when when that uh, when Kerry Packer got the rights to uh, to cricket through that World Series upheaval back in the seventies, he he sought Richie Benno, he sought Ian Chappell, and he sought Tony Gregg, who were national captains, right. and. Uh, he, he used them as uh, commentators and sort of sounding boards and organisers and what have you. And part of the deal was that they remained virtually assured of a job there for life. Right. And Chapel's still going. Um, um, Tony Gregg and Richie, of course, have gone, but Bill Laurie also was part of that and he's he still can do it if he want. Well, they've lost the rights now, but he was there right to the end. Yeah. So yeah, there was that honour that yeah. um, was was expressed to those blokes. But um, yeah, I think most sports honour their champions to to a fair degree, um, and Richie Beto was certainly mm. one of them. I worked with Richie. Um, I joined the Sun um, in nineteen sixty seven, and he was the cricket expert at the time. Um, and not long, not long after that, I was I was hired to write the rugby basically. But not long after that, he had a bit of an argument with them about a grading system that had been revised, so he resigned, and uh, I became the cricket man as well. <laughs> um, but part of the deal was that Richie continued to write commentary, comment pieces. 
So each day I would speak to him on the phone when there was a test match on and we'd work out who'd do what and how we'd do it. It was a wonderful education because mm. he just knew the game inside out. He was he was with McGilvray. They were probably the best minds I ever struck. Yeah, wow. That's incredible that you then got to work so close, so closely with them. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I started a magazine called Inside Edge uh, many years after when I was working at um, Packers Magazines. And the first call I made was to Richie, would you write a column every week? Of course. And that he did that for the entire time that I was there, which was about 12 years. Wow. I think he kept going after I left. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, he was. I was very involved with him. Good was he man. quite good at writing? Very good at talking. But he was very good at talking. He yeah. was. He was. His knowledge was. Yeah, he was a good writer. Yeah. He wasn't. He wasn't what you'd call the best writer that ever yeah. drew breath, but he, he certainly got his points across well. And he was fastidious. You know, he used to say to me, "I don't want you to allow any split infinitives into my <laughs> yeah, know, right. things like that." Mm-hmm. He um, he was a fastidious writer. Um, and uh, his knowledge and his understanding and his insights were fantastic. Mm. Yeah, right. Now, <clears throat> let's move now back to the book. Did you mean for the book to be a tearjerker? Um, no. Okay. No, I've got to say. Well, I mean, did- there's some, so there's some, um, there's some stories in it that are um, touching. I think. Oh, because the one about Wayne Pierce. Mm. I just I'd spoken to Wayne not long before I got this book, and then was read the first bit about like the first two chapters. I think and talked about both of you, and then I saw that it had an index. So then just flicked through to the kind of people who would be in it. Saw that it was Wayne Pierce, and immediately went, "Oh, I'll see what it says about him." Read that story about him and the and that. Can you oh, please girl. tell that story? The well, yeah, it was and hold on uh, your hats. If you're driving, you might want to pull over because you might tear up. Yeah, it says a lot about Wayne Pierce, who 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 I rang before I wrote the story because I wanted to um, make sure he was okay. We had talked about it before, but it was just a, a lovely story. I said a lot about him and, and humanity, really, of a little girl who was um, uh, very sick with cancer who was a big Balmain fan went to uh, a key match against Parramatta, I think, um, and a uh, few of the guys there, um, Gary Jack and a few others, had organised that she had a great seat with her mother and um, uh, and this, I'll just break in the middle there, this was an important match for uh, they needed to win at Balmain. But um, they, uh, so she had, a, she had a lovely seat and, you know, they bought a little presents and a, a jumper and so forth. But uh, Wayne, the coach then of the, of the team, he, uh, he also um, volunteered Voluntarily, I think they might. They probably asked him, "Said, would you come up?" He went up and spent um, top before this match with his players in the dressing room. He went <laughs> upstairs to spend time with this young girl, amazing, just to talk about the game and what he hoped would happen and all that sort of thing. And uh, they did win the game, Balmain. And uh, the punchline is pretty sad. It was terrible, actually, as you said. She, except that she had a wonderful day, went home. Um, uh, with her mother, and her mother, um, you know, said she never had a day like, and she was absolutely thrilled by it. The sad thing was she died, mm. you know, following day. So, uh, yeah, it was a very touch me when I wrote it. Mm. The first, first time I heard it, and Wayne told me about it, and Gary Jack told me, I think, originally. But um, but for, uh, Wayne Pierce's attitude to it was, you know, he said, look, don't, don't make a fuss of it. He said, there's a lot of good things happening in this game that, you know, the visits to um, 
nursing homes or, um, you know, to very sick people. There's a lot of that goes on. He didn't want to be singled out. Mm. But, um, you know, he and I, I, I wrote Wayne's book, so I, I've been, you know, reasonably close to him over the years, so he was happy enough for the sto- story to be told, and I thought it was important to tell it too. Yeah. Now, I, I've read that book since last seeing you. I finally got a, a copy of it. I'm not sure I've told you this, but it's in Leichhardt Library, but they won't, sorry, Bowman Library, but they won't let you borrow it for fear of losing it. So you can only read it in the library. That's how important that book is to this community. Mm-hmm. So that's exciting for you and Wayne. Um, do you think he is, because in the book, I think you talk about it again, how he was unjustly not selected for Australian um, things. And last time I spoke to you, you brought that up. Do you? Do you think he is the the kind of most respected player who you've seen play in your in your? Just the way you talk about him, I get that feeling. But I, I wonder if that's true. I think he was very special for the game because of the clean cut image and and the and the uh, not contrived decency. He wasn't ever right. contrived. He's a decent fellow, Wayne. You know, and he was extremely good for the game at an important period when the game was starting to spread its wings. So um, it was important in that way. But I don't think the game treated him well. He mm. missed out on a. A test match he could have played in um, and should have played in. Didn't get the nod. There was a lot of politics going on, you know, clubs pushing for players and that sort of thing. But I think the worst thing that happened was he, he was ruled out of a fitness trial, ruled out of a kangaroo two on a fitness trial at, mm. a, at Redfern Oval, which was in shocking condition. Any one of us had ran across it, you'd probably pull up. Well, you wouldn't normally. Not normally. He'd power through and do 100 push-ups. But, <clears throat> but um, and uh, Wayne missed his footing and uh, the, the doctor... Decent man, you know, he made the judgment that he was um, that he wasn't fit to go on the tour when in actual fact he'd been working his backside off trying to get yeah. fit and should have gone. Mm. There's no doubt. I've I went away on tours where players who were more damaged than he was right. went. So I think that was most unfortunate. He treated the game very well and I think he still probably continues to do that. Decent yeah. fella. The game didn't treat him too well. Yeah. And then speaking, taking one step back, then that you moment you mentioned briefly there that clubs are pushing players and things like that. That Phillip Street clubs kind of running rugby New South Wales Rugby League, and now Wayne is part of the the commission that is now yeah. taking that spot. Do you think that's kind of poetic justice then that it's been taken out of their hands and now Wayne is in the part of? He's accidentally. I mean, no one's putting him. He hasn't put himself there. Hasn't worked there like a polit, in a political way. It's just his. He's yeah. found himself there. Maybe it is a bit of conscience, you know. Mm. I think people realise that he wasn't treated as well as he, he could have been. And um, he's got a great knowledge of the game, obviously, and, and that decency about him. He's common sense sort of a bloke, you know. He'll be, he'll be, he's a good addition there, and I think it's a good thing that happened. But jumpers, you know, green and gold jumpers were taken away from him too, and he wouldn't feel too great about that. No. But it happened in the game. Politics, you know, club secretaries play politics and push people and... Players are selected for various reasons at times. Well, they were. Maybe it happens now. I don't know. Mm. Did when you were rugby league week? Did you do much of the Phillip Street? Go down there. Was that? Is that the same time? No, that that was much later. But when I was at the Telegraph initially, I, I think the first league meeting I went to down at uh, Phillip Street back in the days when they had the big what they call them the council, the general council, or yeah, the auditorium kind of yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The first one that I went to, the uh, chairman was H Jersey Flag. Oh wow! I think it was his his pretty well, certainly his last year. He died later that year, but that was nineteen sixty, and uh, he was a wizened old yeah. old man at that stage. But he'd been there for I think since pretty much since the game's inception. Isn't that amazing? And uh, 
And uh, yeah, it was quite extraordinary to see that little piece of history. But those meetings, I mean, Ian wrote a fantastic piece in the book about those meetings. Mm. They were just a circus. They were as funny as a fit. Well, yeah, they were because the the um, the, the men meeting used to deteriorate physically oh, owing God. to the fact that they'd stopped at various hotels on the way to the meeting. They yeah, were, on the way, yeah. They were pretty much sizzled before they got there. <laughs> and by the time the evening was over, they were completely sizzled. Yeah. To their credit, uh, to his credit, then they had a very strong, uh, and I think I probably gave him a rep in the book, William George Buckley. Mm. who worked at the water board. He was the president. A really, I, he, he was very good to me personally, I've got to say. He had a gruff sort of a bloke, wasn't he, Norm? Mm. But a really good leader. Didn't take any rubbish Pretty straight me. guy. He'd send them mm. from the room. You know, it was tough. It was tough stuff, you know, especially if their blokes were snoring up the back. and <laughs> which, which was quite regular. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had too much to drink. I think that's what I read in the book. You read that you oh, yeah. find oh, yourself oh, up from booze or you put yourself to bed through booze. Well, they all met in their little clumps around... Um, um, different hotels around Sydney before right. the meeting, so it was the meeting was pretty lively from the kickoff. You know, there was plenty of blokes giving. It was, cra- it was crazy stuff. It, it really does was. sound great, but but was it also like it's great that it's gone? Am I am I also getting that feeling? Well, it wouldn't yeah. survive in this day and age. Yeah. No way. Yeah, I mean, you last... couldn't. That sort of behaviour just wouldn't, wouldn't wouldn't be possible. Right. But yeah, it was an age of great character. I mean. Right. Uh, I lament some of the things that have gone, I have to say, because um, it was just such fun in those days. <laughs> but within but, that room, there, were, there was considerable talent. Oh, there was. Right. And uh, there were some big decisions made. I mean, yeah. it wasn't just total shambles. I mean, there were some good good things yeah, done. But good thinkers, Latcham Robinson from here, from Balmain, I mean, he's, he was a first-class debater on his feet, mm. really good, and there were yeah. a few like that who could really handle that. So they were, they were sort of rough-hewn... Blokes with a bit of wisdom, you know. They, right. So they weren't all bad, but the the, the Monday night drinkathon probably <laughs> lowered the tone a little, you know. Yeah, but, right. But, but uh, these were, these were guys that I mean, most of the men that we dealt with when we were virtually boys, starting off in this process, had been through a world war. Mm. Some of them had come out of a depression. Mm. Um, they had an absolutely different take on life. The best the best one I can relate, who was like that, was Keith Miller, who was. Again, you know who Keith Miller no. would? No. Well, Keith Miller was one of the greatest cricketers this country's ever produced. Uh, he was an all-rounder, but he was a, had a film star bearing, and he was one of the great personalities of the age. Um, and he was, he was, he was, he wasn't a year. Of all the yeah. of all the sportsmen that this country's produced, he is one of the most he amazing, dashing, one of yeah. probably the most dashing of all. But the he lived life. his life. He lived his life as if it was going to end tomorrow, right. because he'd been a fighter pilot in World War Two, right? Which cost him some of his best years as a cricketer. And he always said that uh, you know, once he survived the war, um, every day was a bonus, mm-hmm. and that's the way he lived. Um, and if, if you read up on Keith Miller, he was um, he was an extraordinary person. He, he he had a bad. He was started off as a batsman. He used to he scored a hundred and fifty or something in a in a in a an AIF army game at Lords just towards the end of the war, which they still say was the best innings ever played at Lords, wow. which is a big statement. Um, but he'd hurt his back in a belly a, he'd belly landed a a Spitfire or. A hurricane or whatever they were flying in the in the war, and it hurt his back, um, which is why he didn't bowl. But uh, after a while, the back came good, so he started bowling again. And uh, he was he got he got 
he got wickets everywhere. You know, he was wow. just a yet. He was a sort of guy that would be. Uh, 12th man in a game and one of the county games, and he just disappeared. He'd go to the races, you know. He, was a <laughs> he would do he would do things that nobody else would do. Right. But again, he'd come out of the war, and that changed his whole yeah. perception of life. And when you say that, it makes a lot of sense. If you're playing cricket not long after you've been in the war, you know that seems like a real luxury and a real yeah. That that's well. There was a famous fun. there was a famous story. I know, I know this history is getting a bit ancient, but no. it's a famous story about um, um, in the first series after the, the war, Australia played England and there was a match. The first test was in Brisbane. And in those days, they didn't cover wickets. So if it rained, the wicket got very sticky and it was, it was quite dangerous. Bradman was captain, Miller was bowling, and the batsman was a fellow called Bill Edrich, who was a great English opening batsman. And Miller's bowling at him and the ball's jagging all over the place because it was a wet wicket. Mm. Um, but Miller kept it up to him, didn't bowl short. And Bradman's walked up to Miller and said, look, uh, let him have it, Keith, give it a bit more, give it a bit faster. And Miller just refused. He said, no. He said, that guy, Bill Edrich, he flew in the war. He got a DSO, distinguished, uh, what did he get? A no, DFC, distinguished flying cross. He said, it was as good as a VC if you flew in the Battle of Britain. Right. He said, and I'm not going to kill a hero. Yeah, wow. And he just refused point blank to um, to bowl fast at this guy. That Edrich that day got 16 not out. I asked Alan McGilvray towards the end of his life, who was the, what was the best innings you ever saw? And he'd seen Sobers get his 254, he'd seen Bradman get his 254, he'd seen so many great innings. Bill Edrich, 16 at 16 and the Brisbane, on a Brisbane sticky wow. in 1946. Wow. I just, yeah, I never I never think about that period. That's incredible. No. I'm so glad we're talking about this. Okay, so I think it's a fair point, just as a tagline to that, to make it those rugby league officials we're talking about from those early Yes, particularly when you started then and on going to the Monday night meetings. They were just working class blokes. They'd come out of the mm. war years too. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And they cared about the game. You know, mm. most of them had backgrounds in the game or their relatives had backgrounds in the game. So they were, they were a solid bunch. You know, you, you can get a laugh out of the things they did now and then. Bobby Seabrook was a very colourful East official but a little bit later, but he, he had a wonderful turn of phrase. And he was talking about he, – <laughs> he grew up in Paddington and he, he was talking to it about it one day and he said um, – so what was it like? And he said, cockroaches as big as pigeons at what? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> he said, because li they lived in the, the slums. It was virtually slums then. They right. were living in the slums of, you know, Sydney. Yeah. We should have known at the time how yeah, they that's right. value. <laughs> Bob was typified those sort of blacks. You right. know, they were, was that when he was looking for the handle under the... But that was the same night, yeah, yeah. When Kevin Humphrey. Oh, I loved that one. Now, also, I cried laughing. Speaking of funny stories in this book, I loved this, the story about the French player Lacaz. Like, yeah, like hers. Yeah. yeah, who allegedly hadn't been tackled for years. Mm. Talk us through that one. Well, he, he played, um, I think he played against the Australians a few times, but he was a very um, strategic fullback who didn't didn't care to run the ball. He sort of carried on from the very famous Puyo Bear, who was the um, great French goal kicker, who, whose, whose idea was that to get tackle was not his job, but... Pierre Lacaz, he didn't want to get tackled, but he got unlucky in a game against the Australians in France. And um, I think the quote of one of the players was, "He he really did get unlucky because Chang Langland's got him with a high shot and knocked him cold." And he, so Pierre's on the deck, and he used to wear a wig. That's right. So they, 
and the wig in the in the the blow that he'd been struck shook up the wig so much when they they were trying to find the wig and there it was over his face <laughs> and lying on the ground with the wig. Can you believe it? So the only probably the only bewigged rugby league player in history, I would think. Took a big risk playing against the Australians with a wig. I swear there were some rough boys in that Australian yeah. side too, with Chang and. Still and did, they would have given it to him verbally then from then on for the oh, rest of that game. Oh, no, they're all gentlemen. They wouldn't have said anything at all. Well, he wouldn't have understood would any. <laughs> he probably wouldn't have spoken. They, they didn't speak. They would have, he would have understood, though, I'm sure, by the tone and the... He might have got the drift, he probably. Picked, he would have picked up on the uh, the attitude, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, he may have been called. He may have put his hand up and gone, I might need to come off. Shane Blake was a really good goal kicker, actually. He could handle the pressure of the goal kicker. Yeah. Just didn't... And I think it might have been a French the French thing in the larger picture. That is not my job. I'm here. That was Puyo Bears. I'm here to kick the goals, you know. Mm. They must make do the tackling and he'd indicate upfield with <laughs> the blokes. Someone had made a break against them, you know, and the blokes upfield hadn't tackled him. So Puyo Bear would walk away from it, you know. De-wigged. It's not my job. It's not yeah. my job. And uh, that might be why there's so many headgears in the game these days is to keep us from finding out their baldness or their wigs. I hadn't thought of that until now. Maybe. That might be the only de-wigging because we've caught, the technology's <laughs> caught up. That's right. That's possible. <laughs> now, if, um, if you could have anyone in the world read this book, who do you really want to read it? Oh, no. <laughs> it's not in his notes, so he's going to throw to you first. Oh, I don't know. Um, I'll do my answer then. How about that? And you boys can right, think about it. You go, you go. Well, I really hope the Queen reads it. Because she comes off really lovely in this book. No, that, was, that was a great <laughs> night. It was really a great night. Uh, we were all, uh, that was the, I mean, lots of lots of sporting teams have got to see the Queen. But this particular night uh, in 1975, we had a, uh, a wallaby team of some characters. And uh, we were actually in a Buckingham Palace. And you go in the, at this time, there was no tours of Buckingham Palace or anything like right. that. If you got into Buckingham Palace, you were really... It was a privilege. There's no question about that, and very few people did get in. But um, you go up the stairs, and the footmen are there in their 17th century garb or whatever it was, and and there's this this gallery of of paintings which has got everyone from Da Vinci to they're all there. Fantastic. On that particular night, we had the Queen, Prince Charles, and Princess Anne. The process was that you introduced to them, and uh, as you all trail in. And then each of them separates and you get a pot of about 10 people around right. each member of the royal family. We had a guy on that tour, Stuart McDougall, who was quite a, he was a front row forward who had been, there was a, a, a Brisbane test match in that previous year called the Battle of Ballymore in which McDougall had distinguished himself by charging into Englishmen with fists and boots flailing and okay. causing a mini riot. But he was a very funny, funny bloke, and when he was introduced to Prince Charles, he quickly sort of made a connection and ended up calling him, yeah, Prince Charles is the what the great steward of England and yeah. the Baron of Renfrew. I think, his, I think you write the there. whole thing in there, but you wrote his entire title in this. I did. That's the I first did. time I've ever read his entire title. Yeah, well, that's his title. entire yeah. title, yeah, and, yeah. And, and Stuart McDougall's calling him Chicka. Yeah. <laughs> And the, the interesting thing was that Prince Charles actually liked that. Right. And he was telling stories about uh, Australia. And anyway, in the end, McDougal's given him his uh, business card and said, when you're in Sydney, give us a bill, we'll go up the cross. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Charles has said, thank you very much, and stuck it in his pocket. Yeah, well. <laughs> you could only imagine. But it was just a lovely night, and the Queen was just sensational. You know, she was telling us about life at the palace and how she'd had a an investiture or something on there, and one of her favourite things to do was to watch a television program called Kojak, which was an American cop yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. Starring a fellow called Telly Savalas, who was a big, bald man. And she said, I was here one day and I looked up the back of the room and there he was, Telly Savalas. She said, I've never been so nervous. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I said, well, ma'am, he was probably pretty nervous too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but she was she was just an absolute delight. and uh, Because she's just so personable? Or was she, uh, yeah, like, she's, she's just, just easy to talk to. It was like talking to be a mother, right. honestly. She mm. was just wonderful. And, um, you know, irrespective of what you think about republics or monarchies right. or whatever, it was just a wonderful night, and mm. she she was so good, you know. She um, one of the boys on the tour was a teacher at a primary school in a place called McKees Hill in northern New South Wales, and he was lamenting to her that New South Wales government stores were pretty hopeless, and they were, she he was trying to get a portrait of the Queen for his classroom, mm. and ma'am, I can't get one. Can you hurry things along for me? And she sort of just chuckled, didn't say much. But when we got on the bus afterwards, her private secretary has jumped on the bus. Who was the fellow that wanted the portrait? Yeah, wow, well, isn't that <laughs> And he's right up the back of the bus and he's presented it. Compliments yeah. of Her Majesty. Yeah, yeah. This is this is an hour after the original right. discussion, so she doesn't forget much. Mm. Uh, it was a it was a great night. Really, and things like that. They also must understand the 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 value of something like that because you've been. He would be telling that story to this day. You're telling this, and most people on the bus would tell that story. And that's the kind of stuff that makes them yeah, what they are. Yeah, important today. I, I got the distinct oh, yes. impression that night, though, that they actually enjoyed it because right. it was a very – it wasn't stuffy. It was very – at one stage she said something about the television. You know, I said to her, I think, have you, have you seen any of the football on the TV? She said, oh, yes, I've seen one or two games. She said, I like that fellow with the very long hair. And there was Ray Price yeah. <laughs> up on the grand piano, almost prone <laughs> – Talking to the lady in waiting, wow. <laughs> and you know, I mean, it was just it was just a very relaxed, very comfortable, very good night. Princess Anne was in the uh, uh, British Olympic team at the time, uh, equestrian team, and the sport relationship there was terrific. Mm. And, you know, it was just it was it was it was good stuff. It really was. Yeah, uh, 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 yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And and the, I think you ended that chapter by saying something like they all left as monarchists. And I almost did finishing that chapter. I almost felt, you know, ready to vote. Well, I said at that on that night, at that time, they left, a bunch of wallabies left the palace, uh, confirmed monarchists. Yeah. Whether they were an hour later, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But they certainly were as they left the palace. Yeah, yeah. And that's half their job. Now, you did have homework. Did you think about the person that you wanted to, uh, really want to uh, read the book? Oh, I did, actually. It was more than a person, actually. It's probably number of several young people could probably benefit from it. I don't know what age, whether the age of the kids that you're teaching or I just think in the in some of those stories there's messages about sport and life together which are very important. One that comes to mind is a story I like I very fond of, which is probably one of the um one of my favourites in the book, it was about a great bloke who uh Norm knows Harry Wells, a great centre, three quarter, played for Wests. Um, his name was Wills, actually, but he didn't. He wasn't. He was a no-fuss bloke, Harry. So he never bothered changing it. Somebody got it wrong early, so he didn't worry about that. <laughs> but um, it's just a famous moment in a match, a country match down Queenbeyan Way, where he was playing for the other side against Queenbeyan, 
And uh, he was a great centre. He was Gaz- Reg Gasnier's partner, so you get a sense of a, a, a outstanding Australian player, big, strong fellow, wasn't he, and quick. Mm. And um, he, uh, um, Harry made a, a break at a certain point and headed towards his right wing, got the ball away to the winger, created space for him, knocked over a couple of blokes who tried to tackle him, and the winger went at 100 miles an hour down the wing. And the scored in the corner. It was the it was the critical moment in the match. It meant they'd won the game. They'd won the game, so it's a winning a winning shot. And the players are all uh, very excited, of course, and they're looking for Harry. So they look back up the field, and there's Harry standing back on the halfway line. What had happened was he's a very keen bird fancier, Harry. No, he, yeah, he's he, he's got a backyard up halfway up the coast there, which is he loves birds, loves birds probably more than anything. But as he'd passed the ball to the winger, he'd heard an unusual cry no. overhead. <laughs> no. <laughs> which is, uh, um, I don't know if you've ever heard gang gang cockatoos. They make a sort of squeaky door noise. Okay. He heard the squeaky door noise, noise overhead. And um, so he just stopped. <laughs> and all the players ran back up the field and they said, What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> he said, Gang gang. <laughs> you know, they fuck the gang gang. <laughs> the players did. But to Harry, to me, that was just a balance in life. He loved, yes. he loved his football, great bloke, and loved his birds. I asked him one day, I said, what did you, what did you like best? you like the birds? Or, oh. He went for the birds, actually. Wow. <laughs> but um, and then and Norm Proven told me a story about him one day too, about when the New South Wales team were in, um, in Queensland for a match, the uh, interstate match, obviously. But then Harry had gone to the markets there, as he used to do whenever they went up there, and um, he'd bought several birds. Uh, parrots to bring back on the plane. They were the old slow planes in those days. So they got on the plane. They had these bloody the parrots in the um, in these you know boxes and things. They got on the plane, and the players were under instruction. If the parrots struck up a bit of noise, as the parrots are a bit inclined to, the players had to then shout at each other and, and try and subdue the noise. So the players were all part of it. So they came back to Sydney, and any time the parrots he wasn't them. supposed to have the birds on the plane. Oh no. No, no. What? And so they had to cover it up with their own. They covered it up by, you know, pretending to be drunk footballers, which some of them would be well, pretty good. Well, they volunteered <laughs> willingly to well practice. So wow. I just think that story, to me, that just shows a bit of balance. That's nice mm. balance in life. Harry loved his, and he, he loves company too. He's a, he's a great bloke. And if you get a chance to meet him, he's one of the um, a very warm, terrific character, you know, but a great, very great player. Loved his birds, loved his family. Mm. And uh, it was a nice message for life, you know. Yeah. It's not just about sport, you know. That's that's basically what it is. Jeez, I'm I'm as happy as I'm sure his players were that he passed the ball before he heard that noise, or else he may have just pulled up short with the <laughs> ball and got hammered. But <laughs> he heard the squeaky door, so, yeah. so he had to stop. It is it is uh, a thing about books, though, that um, there is this intergenerational sort of hand on. I, I you know, when I, I've written books for, I remember Steve Menzies. I wrote a book for him once, and. And I, I, I said, I say this to anyone. I said the same to McGilvray and Arthur Summons and all. Them. You know, books are really about preserving things. Mm. You write a book; it's for your children, it's for your grandchildren, right. it's for generations yet to come. It can sit on bookshelves for a thousand years, and that's the great value, I think, of of a book. Mm. And the people you write for are often the people that come. Yeah, right. Wow, what a great – that's such a – you've both nailed this answer. 
That was a funny, this is you doing your thing where you, you do different things. You've done a great funny one that had a nice message and you've done a, a serious one that has a great message. You're doing the book live, boys. This is great. We should think of doing a book, Norm. Why don't we sit down and not one or over here? Or a talking here. tour. You should take this on tour. You're sitting on stage. And... Okay, well, well, while we're thinking about this kind of uh, outlandish thing, thinking about all the amazing feats and stories that you've been able to watch, is there a sporting thing that you haven't watched that you really wish you had, a sporting event that you wish you'd seen? Between the two of you, you've been at most of them. Well, um, I wish I'd seen Bradman's 254 at Lords in 1930, mm. but I was well short of being born, so mm. I couldn't get to that one. Um, I wish, you know, from a purely dramatic perspective, I'd have liked to have been part of the Bodyline right, Test series. Match Series mm. here in 1932-33. Covering uh, it or as a fan? Oh well, I think I think to cover something like that, I mean, to cover it by today's standards would have been an exceptional right. thing to do because it was it was World War. Mm. I mean, they took it so seriously in those days. Mm. They would get a withdrawal from the from the empire as it was then, and all sorts of things. Mm. So, and I, I knew a lot of those blokes, you know, Fingleton and Bill O'Reilly and those guys who played in that. And uh, to hear their stories, it was just a fascination. That must have been a an unbelievable event. Um, so there's a couple. Ian? Um, well, before we move off the, sorry, the Bodyline series, I mean, that's taught today in schools mm-hmm. in modern history about Is Australia. And, yeah, uh, when you look at, when you study Australian and, and British relationship, it is done just through that test series yeah, and, how, yeah. and how that's changed us. And that's incredible that, um, yeah, it's an incredible period of time. I used to... Uh, because of my uh, being friendly with McGill Ray, he used to invite me down at the Adelaide Oval every uh, every well, every Test match year. The Test down there would be on the uh, long weekend of Australia Day in January, and uh, at tea time on the Saturday there was a gathering in the bar underneath the members' stand of a lot of well McGilvray's mates. There was Jack Fingleton who opened. The batting for Australia in the Bodyline series. There was Clary Grimmett, who was a very famous leg spin bowler who played into his 50s and took many, many, many wickets for Australia. Bill O'Reilly, who bowled in that uh, and batted in that Bodyline series. Lindsay Hassett, who followed them not long after. Neil Harvey, Keith Miller. These were absolute legends of the game at that time. And the stories they would tell of Bodyline and of Bradman and of all the things that occurred around that time were just fascinating. Mm. You know, you, you can't imagine the drama of it. Mm. We we get all heated up about a kid scratching a cricket ball in. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they were trying to kill each other. Mm. And, well, they do it now, but it's sort of accepted now. Yeah. But it wasn't accepted. It's accept- regulated now or it wasn't It's then. regulated. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't regulated then and it certainly wasn't accepted. And the no. only protection they had was a woolen cap. Mm. And people are getting seriously hurt. You mm. know. It, was a, it was a bad time. Mm. Yeah, and, and obviously the, the greater ramifications in our relationship between the two countries as well came well, into play. Well, it, it went to the very top, Prime yeah. Minister to Prime Minister, yeah. threatening to withdraw from the from the empire. Isn't that amazing? I it love was, sports it was, sometimes. It was almost World War. The, yeah. uh, Jardine, the captain of the England team, was threatening to take the team home and a lot of people said, well, good riddance. Yeah. You know, it was just a, just amazing the way that, I hadn't yet been born, but I uh, would have liked to have been there. Yeah. Is there an event that you wish you'd seen? Um, it's 
probably a few, but one one that stands out is an unusual one in some ways, and that um, it's not about rugby league or other games. It's something I learnt was when I was away on the nineteen seventy three Kangaroo Tour to the north of England. When I heard there, and I, I learnt from a couple of different sources about, and I was aware anyway in a small way of a horse race meeting that was run up at the Grand National of that year. It was run at Aintree, which was not far up from where um, we were staying in Yorkshire. But um, it always stuck in my head. I remember talking to an old bloke in New Yorkshire in the pub near where we were staying and said, well, you must, you must see it. You know, you must see this event. I finally did, thanks to uh, YouTube, <laughs> many years later. And I've got to say it's probably one of the most amazing sporting events I've ever seen this marathon uh, race which they run every year over the giant jumps featuring a two-horse battle between the Australian champion Crisp and the English champion Red Rum. It is stunning. It's a stunning piece of sporting film and poignant at the end, unbelievably poignant. And that, I think, to me, that just... Uh, I wish I'd love to have been there that day. Mm-hmm. The good thing now is you can see those things, you know, yeah, so it yeah. is there. If you get a chance to have a look at it, have a look. But we um, we were briefly talking about it before about the Kathy Freeman um, race, which gets a which gets a mention in this, mm. and and you can watch that on YouTube, but you can't yeah. you can't get the kind of feeling that you you talk about in that chapter. You can't get that um, without being in Sydney in that lead up that you know, and and then seeing her with the flags afterwards, it looks kind of just normal. Not normal, but it doesn't look as powerful as it might sure. now. Yeah. How, how do you try and combat that? I mean, you, you're both now talking about, you know, these kind of stories all the time. How do you really try and get people to feel that power? Well, it's the power of words. I mean, you've, you've got to feel it yourself for a start. Right. And uh, I think if you feel it yourself, the words just sort of come. I mean, if and you do get practised at using words. And, you know, when you've, you've been using it for a long time, you you get a hang of how to sort of convey things. Sometimes you don't, of course. Sometimes you can't. There's nothing like being there. Mm. But that's all I think we've tried to do, and that's been our, basically our life's work is trying to convey these things in words. Uh, and, again, going back to McGilvray, he did the same thing. He always said word pictures were his trade. And uh, it wasn't just saying what had happened. It was conveying how it was happening right. and how it felt and what the atmosphere was and all the things that surround a, a, a great event. Just good words. Because mm. now that you've mentioned that, her I mean, there's no commentary of how she runs that. It is the atmosphere. It's you beforehand and the excitement around it and then, mm. and then the feeling afterwards. Yeah, well, there was a little bit more to it, I suppose, for me, in that I'd been in um, Melbourne sometime that year to talk to her manager, possibly about a book some down down the track. She was always going to do books, and I'm sure she's done that. But um, he painted the picture for me of um, what the year ahead was going to hold. She'd run second in the Atlanta Games, and big things were ahead. There were big expectations. And he just told me how, took me through how she was going to be not locked away, she was still going to fulfil her obligations to young Australia and to young Indigenous Australia. She mm. felt that she had, she was now a heroine, you know, and she, she understood that. And he said, and I, his words were something along the lines, he said, apart from those things happening, you won't be seeing her. Yeah, wow. And that was it the next time, and I didn't see her that day. She wasn't there at this meeting. I was there with, with, the, with the manager. But the next time I saw her was in that, Race. race and wow. those words came back to me that mm. and everything had happened. She disappeared off the 
radar, mm. been brought along quietly and was in terrific shape and won mm. the race. Mm. And um, so that was, so I did have a sort of personal thing about that because yeah. I thought, yeah, I remember exactly what he said, you know. Yeah, and you've covered a lot of Olympics, as Norm said before. It's, was that your favourite one, 2000? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Just the buzz of the hometown mm. crowd and the um, the new stadium and the pride that people felt uh, and the fact of it bringing, you know, Sydney people together, I think, you know, the scenes on some of the buses and that. Well, there was great harmony, which you was, don't always see. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was very present. I think it was the exact con- – I went to the Moscow Olympics and um, it was an exact contrast there. Really? Where to go to any venue was to be to walk up between lines of grim-faced soldiers, you know, holding guns. Basically, so um, wow. it had a coldness about it, you know, and um, mm. uh, so it, it was very different. And uh, I went to Atlanta, which was a shambles. It was like a big um, East to show, you know, thing. Wow, but not as cla- nowhere near as classy <laughs> as the East to show. Every, just an insult I've ever heard one. <laughs> every small to a small town carnival, and you know. Um, Shyster and everyone had come into right. town thinking they were going to get a big quit out of the Olympics, but mm. it didn't work. It was a flop, really. Mm. Um, so it was a pretty grim games, grim games. But Sydney, yeah, Sydney did a terrific job, actually. And, and so I, I put them on top and put Moscow last, I think. <laughs> but also, the I, I distinctly remember a, a really negative feeling from the, or a very cynical feeling from a lot of Sydney siders in the world. We're all going to leave, you know, mm. because it's. Is it, you know, and all this travel, all this building we've been doing, costing so much money, and then the comp- when it started, complete reverse. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was yeah. so powerful because it, we'd gone from minus five now to you know positive eleven. Yeah, that the volume had just really been turned up. It was a really great experience. It was a wonderful community event. It just got the yes. whole of the city involved. It's fantastic. But but I just assume that's every Olympics, and and now because I've not been to another one, but you're telling me now that it mocks, Moscow tries to shoot you and Atlanta tries to rob from you. So well, yeah, and there's always a lot of um, big businesses always around the scene at Olympics these days. You know, mm. they're um, it's a monstrous event. You know, it's, it's special to be there, but it's got too big, probably. Yeah, I think I think I think that's probably right. You know, and and the drugs thing colours it too, doesn't mm. you? Wonder if you've seen Fair Nickham. People winning races or not. Mm. My, my standout memory actually from Atlanta was um, I worked with Kevin Berry, who was a, a great swimmer for Australia, and he, he and I went over there and we ran a little um, AOC, just a little office really, for people if they want to come and ask questions about what was going to happen in Sydney. And we'd, but I, I walked out to have a look at the marathon out the front of um, Peachtree Street in um, Atlanta, just to have a look at the marathon runners go past. Couldn't believe it. I can't. It shows that television has got its limitations in one way. Does a great job in many, but the speed of the athlete is right. astonishing. Right. To be that, I was as close to them as I am to you now, mm-hmm. and to see the speed that these blokes mustered running for however many hours, two hours, more yeah. than two yeah. hours, and the number of kilometres, just amazing, you know. And I think it happens with the downhill ski too. Probably they go mm. enormous speeds, but I don't think the television does it justice. Now, while we're um, we're thinking about great things, our favourite things, do you have a favourite chapter of this book? I have mine. I'm going to come to that later if you need time. Um, well, it depends. If you want something serious. Um, well, it's a good way to answer it, actually. I think the most profound probably was the one about South Africa and yeah. just the difference that those guys, those wallaby guys made to the nature of sport internationally and to the nature of South Africa as a country. Mm. So that was a significant one. Uh, I enjoyed some of the lighter ones. I enjoyed 
I enjoyed the Buckingham Palace thing because I was <laughs> I was back there, yeah, sipping yeah, yeah. sipping away at the Palace <laughs> grog. Yeah, surely not. Oh yes, absolutely. There's a shot. Um, <laughs> but I enjoyed I yeah I enjoyed some I, I enjoyed it all. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I can't picking a favourite's really hard because um, they're all part of it. You know, mm. they're all part of what we've done and part of what we are. Some of the little funny ones, like waking up the uh, centre to play against the All Blacks on the following Saturday on a Thursday morning when he was asleep on my floor with the biggest hangover in Christendom. That was one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, just, there's just lots of lots of things that you right. really enjoy. I had a, quite a lot to do with Louise Savage. Right. And I, I wrote, she's up writing her book. And I, I admire Louise greatly. Life's really tough, you know, getting around the, all the things she does. And she's a great athlete, wonderful athlete. And it happened before the Sydney Olympics that I, yeah, she, I think she came to me. Somebody came to me and said, "Would you, could you write Louise's book?" So I was doing. I'd been doing that before the games. I'm going to see her regularly. She was living not far from the um, games, the, the village actually. But um, what I remember probably best is these, we did these long interviews, you know. She'd just got a new puppy, so I, the, all the interviews were done with me with this, <laughs> the puppy sitting on my lap. So um, just just the fact that she won in Sydney and then a little further down the track at the time of 9-11 when an Australian rugby league team voted not to go to England because they were, you know, worried about what might happen. Mm. I remember Louise getting on. She went to took herself, drove herself to the airport with all the luggage and the wheelchairs, got on the plane, flew to Middle America, won the race that she she'd gone over for, wow. and flew back home without any fuss. Wow! And I, I asked her, I said, um, "Did you ever think about not going after all this publicity for the Australian, you know, the, the league mob?" And she said, "Oh, very briefly." But she said, "She said life's got to go on." Yeah, she just right. got on with it, you know. But um, and the other one, which I'd, I'd put in it only because he happens to be a relative of mine. <laughs> Is that right? Is that fair game? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, There's a story about my uh, cousin Peter Gumbleton and the the movable furlong post, which is um, he was a jockey and a good jockey. He won some big races, had some bad falls, broke his neck once hitting me. Wow. Had a very tough life as jockeys have, you know. Peter was riding for a a knockabout trainer up in the north of Queensland. That's about as far away as he got. He finished up going overseas, riding in Hong Kong and won some great races, as I said, uh, riding for a bloke up there who'd worked out a... A system he had a good horse that he thought could win the cup. What happened was that on the Friday before the cup, all the other horse, the horses that were running in the cup came into town and were to work out on the Saturday morning on the track, on the main track. His name was Cocky Easton. He, uh, <laughs> the, uh, he was a knockabout. He'd been a prisoner of war, a real knockabout bloke. He, he was the trainer of the, and he, he worked out a plan which involved Peter and another junior jockey to the Friday night before this workout by the horses. They got them up at 2 o'clock in the morning and they went, moved up the track, got the, th- the three furlong post, moved it down towards mm. the winning post. So they put that down on the, on the track. And the next morning all the, the other horses came and the horses, unsurprisingly, from the three furlong to there, was a much shorter distance. Mm. We were running very fast times. <laughs> and Cocky Easton's hopes of getting, he was hoping to get about 50 to 1 about the horse, you know, but it was down to... Eight or ten to one, but after this had happened, after they'd performed this deed, um, suddenly Cocky got this great price about his horse. Mm. Everyone's saying, "What about it?" That was a wonderful trial. You know, they'd all trialed on a short track, 
But anyway, what happened was that night Peter and the other jockey had to get up again and go and move the <laughs> move buddy, the move the post back. <laughs> and um, the punchline is that the horse bolted in and won the cup. The Yay! Next <laughs> Isn't that great? One of the great scams of um, <laughs> the turf, I would think. Yeah. Peter was very proud of it, actually. He was um, he's a great little bloke and um, he, he, you know, he laughed about it. But um, He'll be arrested now that it's on record. The police will read this and, yeah, yeah. that's all right. He's he'll, no longer with us, yeah, so they can't jail him, oh, so that's all right. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> laughing all the way. Now, my favourite one, surprisingly, is a bit where you talk about your AFL uh, career because I had no idea you had anything ever to do with AFL and there you were in two games and two of the most bizarre games, at least the first one, where that, that insane brawl broke out. Mm. What's going on there? I mean, first of all, did you enjoy the games? You mustn't oh. have because you didn't go to many after that. No, I didn't. I wasn't drawn to it. I was never yeah. drawn to it. I was That's why you and I are such good friends. I preferred the um, <laughs> the blood and thunder of rugby league always. But <laughs> blood and thunder? That's a great <clears throat> way to describe it. I was probably a cadet journalist in 1963, I think. It was the date of me being sent to cover the Australian Rules Grand Final at Trumper Park in the eastern suburbs. So that was all right. And we did, did all sorts of different jobs, yeah. you know, Norm and I. But uh, that was my job. I had to go and cover this the grand final between West and Newdown. So uh, that was okay. But on the, fr- remember the, the Friday beforehand, I was pulled aside by one of our uh, sub-editors who used to give us good advice. And this, the bloke who pulled me aside was a bloke of particular wisdom. He'd been the fight caller and the race caller, I think, normally. Lockie Melville. Lockie Melville, yeah, for uh, Big Rock. And he said, and he's a quiet fella, he said, oh, you're going to the uh, rules on Sunday. And I I said, yeah, yeah. He said, um, I'll give you a tip, get there early. Oh, okay. So I copped his tip. I was living at Bondi then, got a bus, went to the went to the football. Good crowd there. It was, you know, it was probably 10,000, 12,000 or something. Mm-hmm. And um, the game's duly started with a bounce in the middle, and at which point... The worst brawl I have still ever seen in my life. Program. Unbelievable! Blokes ran from everywhere, and there's this tremendous brawl, yeah, which took place. And um, having set the pace for that, that continued throughout the match. At one stage, a player ran off the field to deck someone in the grandstand. Unbelievable! As you do, you know. Unbelievable! And finally, before the end, you know, it was looking really ugly. Just about every ruck was a brawl. Oh, my God. And um, before the end of the game, the, the secretary of the, the Aussie Rules mob rang the police. So <laughs> the game finished with the police lining the ground. As soon as the police were there and they signalled full time, that was it. And all the players went off, shook hands, and off they went. Unbelievable. That was it, yeah. What a bizarre bunch of people. But, but the, the thing was that apparently there was a tradition of that every year that the, the the ape, it would open with a with a blue in the middle, but this one was more savage than anything they've right, seen. I think right. I was sent down to what cover the Swans when they played in their first grand final in Melbourne, and um, no, when they were Sydney Swans, yeah, the Sydney Swans, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, as I, say, I wasn't particularly drawn to that game, but they they were very highly competitive that day and they got beaten, mm. which um, was as it should have been. The other team were better. <laughs> yeah, and well, have you ever been attracted to AFL, Norm? Not especially. Um, my son played it for a little while in the juniors on the Central Coast, and right. I quite enjoyed that, but only because of his involvement, really. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I Do find you know why? Why don't we? Well, have... I don't know. I think it's what you what you grow up to. Okay. Um, and the things that you you lean to in your youth tend to stick. I find. Okay. I'm sure if I'd grown up in Melbourne, I'd probably love the game. Yeah. But it's just it's just a matter of where you are and what you're used to. Mm. 
It, I think it has some difficulties. I don't like it particularly on television because it doesn't. I don't think it relates well to television. No, you I can't get agree. you can't get that perspective that yeah. uh, that you need. Yeah, the sheer um, distance that they run which, and kick and move. Yeah, yeah, which I think is part of what makes it such an appealing game to the membership bases in Melbourne yeah. and the way that they've structured their uh, support base because they get very big crowds. Yeah. People, it is a, it is a participant game. People yeah. people love it and they go to it. Mm. But you're right; the television ratings are really low because also whenever whenever I watch it on television, this might be because I'm being. I've brought been brought up as you say, you know, from a rugby league mindset. But the the lack of being able to pick the ball up drives me nuts. Anytime mm-hmm. it hits the ground and then they juggle it like a bar of soap, and I just it it on it makes me feel more mm-hmm. uncomfortable than watching you know a scary movie. It just well, is bizarre. Well, the, rug, the rugby games, I think, are so much more natural, which is how that started. You know, it was yeah. a guy who picked up the ball and ran because he got so frustrated just being having to kick it all the yeah. time. And and I find I find. You know, you shouldn't say these things, I suppose, but I find soccer similarly frustrating because, you know, you can, you can have all this intricate play to get the ball at one end of the field and some guy just roofs it up the other end and you're back where you started. <laughs> yeah, no, it I'm does, It does not reward the things that should reward. Yeah, no, I agree. And it is uh, there are certain frustrations in not being able to sort of compete to the ultimate levels of your capability, Yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh Norman, you and anyone who's close to me is going to listen to that and then listen to you talk and understand why I'm so. I've really enjoyed this book and really enjoyed talking to you because you both eloquently described that yeah, the 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 shortfallings of both AFL and soccer in, in a very clear and exactly how I feel about them. The um, there was one other thing I was going to say about AFL or soccer. No, it's gone. Okay, well, well, what's next for you both? What's happening for you both next? <sighs> It doesn't well, have to be an X. It doesn't have to be. Well, I, don't, I don't think it starts with a B. It's not B double O K. I don't think. Oh, no. Not just yet. Maybe well. Probably the movie depends who they get to play. Us. <laughs> yes, that's a great. Who who would you who would play you in a movie? Oh. My friend asks people all the time. Oh, I'd mm. probably be Brad Pitt, but he's getting a bit long in the tooth. Now. <laughs> I was going to say I'd have to be very old whoever was playing me. No, um, Boris Karloff. That'd be you, man. Yeah. He's Who been, is Boris Karloff? He's been of, forgotten. No, I'm so sorry. He was the star of the horror, he horror was one of the great horror the movie stars. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> Haunted houses and all that sort of stuff. Right. Do you feel this gener- no, yeah, he'd be a good choice. He'd be a good choice. Do you feel this generation gap here, Ian? <laughs> no, yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> Everywhere we go. The sport I was going okay with, but when we're getting into <laughs> movies, I'm going to get lost, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, that's all my questions and comments. Did you have any other ones before we um, wrap up? No, it's been a great pleasure no, to talk to you. It really great. has. Thanks very much, you know, for your interest in it. You've... No, no, you've done a wonderful job and we really appreciate that you've taken the time to have a look at it and to appreciate what's in it. We think of any other shock horror stories that should be in there, we'll just (laughs) Call me up. Call you up. We won't be recording, but I'd love to hear them. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Norm. This has been great. Big thanks also to Paul Merchinson, who is our wonderful producer. Enjoy your sport for another week. Make sure you go out and get great Australian sporting stories. 65 inside tales. I think I should have made a bigger deal about how many. 65. I mean, you said, I don't know if it was on record. I actually think there's a few more than that. Okay, well, someone's made a mistake on the front cover. We should fix that before it goes out to print. Um, But enjoy your sport for another week, and we'll talk to you next time. Sports best friends. Every book I've done, I've enjoyed. I've not been like Ian. I've only done about 13 or so, but... But I've enjoyed only thirteen. Okay, well, it's still an extreme. <laughs> well, he's done fifty-two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> oh.
That's my wife's count. That's probably, it's possibly true. Yeah. But he's also got biscuits and tea, so he's sitting in, you know, he's enjoying the book process because well, he's got someone. The biscuits and tea are becoming a bit of a, bit of a problem, <laughs> I can tell you. But anyway. listen, the, 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 when you're talking about him, it also reminds